People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Nana Merriweather is an American philanthropist, former professional volleyball player, and beauty pageant title holder. She is known as Miss USA 2012. But she's here today to talk to us about a lot of things, including herbs and wine and her recent journey of self-discovery through wellness. Welcome, Nana, to Health Gig. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. I'm honored. Trisha and I are excited to have this opportunity to talk to you because as Trisha said, you have the most unbelievable sort of journey in your life thus far. And you're only, I think, 37. Is that right? My birthday was last week. So it's, I'm going to to saying 37. Yes. Yeah. So happy birthday. Yeah. Happy belated birthday. We wanted to start right at the very beginning. We know that you were born in South Africa. And one of the things that we thought was so interesting about you is that you have remarkable parents. So tell us about your parents and how they inspired you and a little bit about your very early life. Yeah, it's a great start to talk about them because my life has kind of emerged and kind of continued on their work and their trajectory in life. My father is an American doctor. He grew up in South Carolina during civil rights, so he didn't have much growing up, but he used school as a way to better his life. And he studied really, really hard and went to Michigan State and graduated within three years. I could have been sooner. Um, And then he was admitted to Duke University Medical School, first African-American to attend and graduate. So that was a really, really big accomplishment for him. That's amazing. Yeah. And my mother, she grew up in South Africa and this was during apartheid. And just like my father, she was very much judged based on her skin and did not have much opportunity. But she used school as a way to get out of her situation and got a United Nations grant to come study here in the States. And wow. today she has a law degree, she's a CPA, and she also has an MBA. So wow. wow. I didn't know the CPA <laughs> and MBA part. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. Well, so how did they meet? My dad was working as a doctor in the DC area. And when he was 28, he was already graduated and working as a doctor and got inspiration to start running and track meets. And he'd never been an athlete. Again, he was super and he kept winning track meets and he didn't necessarily have proper training. I mean, he would just like run around the hospital campus on lunch break, (laughs) Um, like hardcore, like knowing what he was really doing, I guess, but he kept winning and he ended up on the cover of Sports Illustrated in 1971. He qualified for the Olympics, but he tore his hamstring so he was not able to Go, but he broke the record for the hundred yards and it'll have really oh wow <laughs> yeah. is that why he was on the cover of sports illustrated yes, for his record breaking and at 28 years old running against all these young young people quote young. wow so, he was a well-known doctor and runner in dc everyone knew him and my parents met at a dinner party she had no idea who he was <laughs> he was really interested in her he'd call her she ignored him but finally she's like fine i'll go on a date with you does he still practice? Yeah, you know, now he's doing telemedicine, which keeps oh, it nice. uh, really entertained. My mom, he was not working for a while. My mom's like, okay, you need to get a job. Yeah. <laughs> You're bothering me. And so he keeps his days busy with telemedicine, which is great. And your mom, is she, what is she doing now? Yeah, so my mom, and I, I suppose we'll get into this now. 
my parents met and my dad was, you know, teaching around Harvard and Johns Hopkins and teaching about these diseases he'd never encountered in real life, like tuberculosis or dealing with patients in real life. So what kind of doctor is he? He worked in the emergency room, so trauma medicine, okay. internal medicine. In the 80s, in the early 80s, in 1981, he moved with my mom back to South Africa. Again, this was still during apartheid, so it was really, really tough for them to um, move around the country. But they settled in a little village on the Kruger National Park. And over eight years, they gave pro bono medical and community work and helped over half a million people while they were there. And so, Amazing. yeah, my mom and I in 2007 started a nonprofit called Meriwether Foundation. And so my mom has kept busy with the work and giving back, especially to do with medical needs and empowering communities in Southern Africa. That's really impressive and amazing. Yeah, they're very inspiring. Yeah, really. It's wonderful. I mean, Olympians. <laughs> and then that's where you kind of got the whole... Yeah. I mean, you're incredible. When we were researching you, it just said you're an incredible athlete. Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> yeah so my life now reads very much like my father. Yeah. Um, which is really funny. And my mother as well. I very much aspects of her. Yeah. Um, I did play sports. I grew up in the DC area and, you know, I played basketball, volleyball, and I ran track. And at the time, I was so in love with the sport of volleyball, but it was not very big on the East Coast. It was very much a California sport. So making your way through the sport and trying to get recruited to colleges was super hard. But <laughs> I had my mom and it was VHS at the time. She would take my games and I spliced a highlight reel and send it to really big schools like Stanford and Arizona and Texas, Penn State. And I ended up being recruited by these schools. But I ended up at Duke for one season and then I transferred to UCLA. And again, at UCLA, it was all California girls. <laughs> they had been playing since they were in the womb. And so it was very much I had to catch up and kind of almost relearn the sport. But I did. And by my junior year and senior year, I became an All-American twice. We made it to the final four my senior year. And I was recruited to play professionally overseas or, or in Puerto Rico. And also I was also uh, invited to train for the Olympic Games of 2008 in Colorado Springs. Was it fun or was it a lot of pressure? How was that? I loved playing volleyball in college. I have nothing to compare it to, but being a student <laughs> athlete in college was you just got like an instant community yeah. and like management administration and they help you like get into classes easier and all, right. the, <laughs> all the advantages of being a great athlete yes so it helped both you know academically and athletically like the systems and programs at ucla were so so amazing i had a lot of fun now playing professionally and training for the olympics was a different sense for me yeah. um, as in, you really, really have to be passionate about the sport, and I was, but somewhere along the lines, I started questioning, there has to be more to life. What else can I do? Than volleyball. Yeah, <laughs> volleyball. <laughs> so I started in mentally moving on, and so I kind of lost the passion to continue on. So when you transferred to UCLA from Duke and started relearning the game of volleyball, you found yourself as not very tall. Is that right? Yeah, so I'm six feet, one inch, so six one. And at the time we were the Pac-10, I believe it's the Pac-12 now, but I was the shortest in my position in the Pac-10. Wow. <laughs> and they're usually like at least six two, six three. And in the final four, we played against Nebraska. 
they had a girl who was six seven. Like she didn't even have to oh jump. Oh my gosh! <laughs> she didn't have to jump. Wow. She just was like there. Yeah, yeah. Luckily, I got the jeans for my dad to be able to jump high to make up for my shortness. In for your shortness, <laughs> yeah. Fun, yeah. Is your mom as tall as you too, or are you the tallest in the family? My brother is actually the tallest in the family. He's about six three, and he's super athletic. Although he never pursued sports in college, he played basketball, and he can still beat my butt. So <laughs> my mom is above average, but she's still uh, she's not over six foot. Yeah, yeah, you gotcha. gotcha. <laughs> After your volleyball career, we're very interested in your pageant life because we find it fascinating. And so you were very successful, but you had an unusual route. Yeah. So tell us about that. Yeah. So after sports, I returned back to school. I had finished undergrad and my dad was like, you must become a doctor and follow in my footsteps. Wow. Okay, I guess I will do that. So I entered into a two-year post-baccalaureate program at USC. It's a two-year program to get all your prerequisites to go to medical school. And they train yeah. you MCAT, you get to shadow doctors, and you're taking chemistry and physics and calculus. And it's really, really intense. I was in the books and I was like, you know what, I really miss competing in something because for so long I'd been both the student and had something else going on the outside, outside of school. And so a seed was planted, I think, by a friend. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll try this. <laughs> there was a pageant coming up on the weekend. It was Miss Malibu. And I was like, I guess I'll try for that. As I said, I was coming out of athletics. I didn't know how to wear makeup. I didn't know like how to really, I sewed my evening dress for the competition. <laughs> like, I didn't even know where to get a gown. That was long <laughs> enough, especially. So I sewed my gown together. And I ended up winning Miss Malibu, which led me on to Miss California, USA. Wow. And so I competed at Miss California, USA, lost. <laughs> but <laughs> Like I had this thing was planted and I was like, wow, that was an amazing experience. So you had to sew your own gown and everything. But what was going through your mind? Like, what were you feeling? Malibu was a bit of a smaller pageant, which is a great entry point. And then you go on to Miss California, where at the time it was the biggest state competition. Yeah, California. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's about, I guess, just remembering off the top of my, I think it was 300 or 350 women competing for the title of Miss California USA. So it was, and in California, right? Yeah. There were these gorgeous women who are not only, you know, beautiful on the outside, they have other things right. in their lives. They're like the full package. And so competition was really, really steep. But I tried for five or six years to get the title of Miss California USA. Never won it. I got as high as second place. And the girl that won that year is now married to Michael Phelps. So as I said, like, very kidding. I was about to age out at 26. And I'd done my studies and I had finished and I was about to begin applying to medical school. And I was like, let me give this one more try. But in my home state of Maryland. I moved back to Maryland and competed for Miss Maryland USA, and I ended up winning. Wow! <laughs> so I became Miss Maryland USA, which now leads you on to the big stage of Miss USA. Right. And at the time, it was a live event on NBC. The entire production of Miss Universe, Miss USA, and Miss Teen USA were the most watched television events at the time besides the world cup and the olympics so like there was no instagram right right, <laughs> right. i was like who's miss usa also donald trump owned the pageant and yes he brought his charisma and everyone was like watching because of him 
I got to compete at Miss USA and in a roundabout way, I became Miss USA, which was just an amazing experience. Wow. In New York City. <laughs> but didn't it have to do with your best friend or something? One of my best friends is the one who planted the seed to compete in the first place. And that okay. in me, I was like, oh, wow, this is really, really exciting. How's your dad at this point? Oh my God, the first couple of years, maybe even three years of competing, my mom and I kept it a secret from him. Yeah, I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> like, school, school, school. And even to this day, he like, he, he'll like out of just the blue and be like, he'd be like, you know, you, there's still time to go to medical school. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like I don't think I'm going to go. <laughs> he became very supportive and, and very proud of me. And so what was it like to be Miss USA? I always say this, I bet it's kind of like being like a president or high official where you don't really control your life. <laughs> you get right. an email at 5 p.m. every day that tells you where to be the next day, like what speech you're going to, what charity event, what red carpet, what movie premiere, and maybe during the day you're volunteering. If we have workouts in the morning, they schedule those in and it's all in like a schedule, like the car's picking up here, the hair and makeup is coming, all this every day for you know several months of reigning as Miss USA and you get to travel and meet so many different people. Did your mom get to go with you on some of these? My mom is just this reoccurring character in my life where like at volleyball she was always at my games. Yeah yeah. To travel with volleyball and same with Miss USA and Miss, especially Miss Maryland USA she, she yeah. helped me and support me and um, get to travel as well so yeah she's always been along the journey. Because I bet it makes it more fun to have somebody with you. Yeah. Are you still the tallest and the oldest Miss USA ever? Is that still a standing fact? I believe there was one girl who won at the age of 28. So I think she may have beat me, but I was 28. at the, the By the time I became Miss USA, I was 28. And I think I still have the title of being the tallest. <laughs> That's fun. <laughs> The Miss USA people, do you guys get together? Like, is there ever like an alumni group or anything? Or No, especially during COVID and things that have gone on in the community. We definitely have a chat now. At least we're all in contact. And I think they're planning a little reunion because there's Miss USA's all the way back. Because I just love, I have this reverence for people who have been before. I love learning from, you know. Right. And so I would love to meet uh, like older Miss USA's who've been through it. Because also during that time, it was such a like a romantic time in American history. Like, Yeah, exactly. How, what it was like for them. That's yeah. so neat. Did you go on to do some things in the fashion world? Yeah. What was that? After Miss USA and nowadays when you win, you get bombarded with followers that you mm. can monetize and sell whatever you want on your Instagram. But at the time I was, you know, Instagram was this new thing. Everyone was like, what is that? So yeah. we really have the opportunity to um, have this, you know, overnight, you know, success on social media. But at the time I realized that I did want to do something else with my life beyond just modeling or anything. So I looked around the world and I was like, who are the most successful women on earth? And I noticed, you know, there was a power in media, especially fashion media that for example, mm -hmm. an Anna Wintour, other editor in chief of a fashion magazine, they can call up anyone and they all show up like a CEO, a sport, an athlete, politician. If you get a call from like Anna Wintour, you show up. And so I realized, wow, I love writing. 
of course, fashion is super exciting. And so I decided I wanted to work in fashion and no one would hire me. <laughs> so I started as an intern at Harper's Bazaar magazine, which is America's first fashion magazine. I can't believe no one would hire you at this point. I worked my way up and I was working as an intern along college students and they would be talking about their classes and then they'd turn around and be like, so Nana, what year are you in? I'd be like, don't worry about it because I was 30 at the time. Yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> so I worked as an intern for about a, almost a year at Harper's Bazaar and other publications. But then a position at Harper's Bazaar as the assistant to the editor-in-chief opened and I emailed everyone I'd ever worked with at the Harper's Bazaar and I was like, I want this job. It took a little while, but I ended up getting the job. That was just a whole nother chapter. And wow. in the movie, The Devil Wears Prada, yes. that movie's like a documentary to me. <laughs> that, that happened in that movie it happened to me in real life. I mean, I got to go to Paris and Fashion Weeks and meet all these world famous fashion designers and get to see, you know, what it takes to put together a monthly book of inspiration and unique stories. And the best thing I learned from my editor in chief was, you know, of course, she'll be remembered as one of the greatest creatives in fashion. She's a legendary editor-in-chief, but what I learned was the business behind it, um, mm. how to mold creativity and, you know, support entire teams along the way. And that has really informed me in my business building. I'm sure we'll get into it, but in my branding and all that I do, I'm very inspired by my editor-in-chief and having worked with her uh, in her yeah. business creatively and, and business to be able, like you said, to watch how that whole business got done and gets done and how effective it is and yeah, how like brands are built. For sure. Like a bracelet on a photo shoot, you know, that's placed there on purpose and it's probably hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of advertising. But to make it look like it's a part of the story and not just business was such a learning experience. Like, oh, like I bet. How long were you there? I was there for three years. And so it was, wow. quite a, it was quite a great experience. And I got to see everything like, because I was yeah. the right hand. What famous designers did you meet and do you love? While I was there, it was Harper's Bazaar's 150th anniversary. And so I got to help put together a bit of like a world tour because my boss, the editor in chief, wrote a book. And mm. so we made stops in Paris, Milan and London. And in Paris, we met Christian Louboutin, and he wow. had a luncheon for us. And not only that, he took my editor-in-chief. He, like, walked us around Paris. What fun. What did you wear? I mean, you would have to be really concerned. <laughs> you know what's fun about working at fashion magazines is you do get a lot of, like, my, my boss would Samples. Out. Yeah, yeah. She'd pass That's down good. clothing and bags to me. Yeah. And then in London, we got to meet Victoria Beckham, and she held an event for us. Oh, wow. Armani. So that was a really, really fun period of working. Yeah. Okay. So then what happened? As much as you can work and work hard in fashion at the time, it was very much nepotistic and it was very, very hard to work your way up without some sort of connection or network. And, and it's not a high paying industry. Yeah. Is it? Uh, yeah. Living in New York City and all of my friends were getting raises and promotions every yeah. year. Yeah. Like, okay, how long can I do this for? 
before, you know, I'm empowered. And of course, through just being around her, I learned my own and built like, for example, my own blog and started doing things like writing for the magazine. But I was not necessarily promoted in the three years that I was there. And so I realized I'd, I'd hit sort of a, a corporate ceiling in fashion magazines. And I started to look around the world again. And I was like, what are the most innovative growth mindset kind of industries? And at the time, everyone was talking about this thing called Bitcoin. <laughs> and I started to read about it and how it is kind of innovative and set to try and save the world. But less the currency, more the technology behind it, which is called blockchain. And it's kind of like the next iteration of the internet and how we're all going to get to own our data. And so I was really, really intrigued. And I started looking around and I found a job opening at a company I currently work at called Consensus. It was at the time an accelerator, which means if you had an idea in blockchain, you would apply to us or reach out to us and we would help fund your idea. And so at the time we had about 50 startups in the blockchain space, founders running around building companies. And we ourselves were founded by an entrepreneur. He was one of the co-founders of Ethereum, which is the second biggest currency behind Bitcoin. I like to call consensus my business school, where all of a sudden I saw people from idea stage build a company and something lit in me that I was like, oh my gosh, one day I want to be an entrepreneur. So I currently still work at Consensus, but I've also started my own business. Yeah, well. which is, yes. that's what we really want to talk about. <laughs> Here you have a side hustle now. Yeah. I, a side hustle. I wish I understood Bitcoin, but I'm going to be perfectly honest. I don't. It all makes sense. People use a lot of technical things around it, but the way I tell the story, it really just makes sense in like human evolution that of course we're headed this way. So in two sentences, what's Bitcoin? I wouldn't even look at the currency. I would look at the technology behind it that, mm -hmm. you know, if you look like a couple elections ago, we all found out that Facebook has the ability to sell data. All these right. companies are following us. It's because they own our data. And so they can, you know, not only sell your data to a foreign country, but they can sell it to companies. And that's how advertising is done online. Blockchain is just the next iteration of that. It's like another layer of the internet where now we're going to be able to own our own data. If there's a Facebook mm. on the blockchain, they will have no access to, oh, I went to get a coffee at Starbucks in the morning. Oh, I own that. that's good. Yeah, that's it in a nutshell. It's just us owning our own data, which is a powerful thing. Yes. Thank you so much for that description. That really does help. So let's talk now about your health journey and about your health scare and how it has propelled you to where you are today. So I was still at Parper's Bazaar and I had read my horoscope and it was like, you should go see a doctor. I was like, okay. I booked my annual visit a bit earlier and I went in and then, you know, a week later you get your results and you go back in and I went back in and the doctor was like, wow, everything's great except for this one marker that says you're on the verge of getting a chronic disease if you do not change the way you're eating, the way you're living. It was such a surprise to me because I was an athlete, you know, I'd come yeah. to sports. I thought I was eating healthy, but unless you educate yourself, you can very much get into, you know, a Western style of eating that not, mm. is not necessarily good for you unless you curate <laughs> or are aware of the things you're eating. Like I still have cheat days, right? But I'm aware of what my body needs. And so I was so surprised. I was 33 at the time. And I was like, wow, how am I getting sick? And I'm so young. Like my parents were not sick at 30. I decided to write about it. 
And I started asking questions because I literally didn't know like how to eat, how yeah. to work out. And then everyone at the time was talking about this thing called wellness. Like goop had just <laughs> was, like rising and, you know, all these things like intermittent fasting and biohacking. And so I decided to take a very beginner's mindset and write week by week a column about one topic in wellness. And I would post about it. People thought I was just like writing a wellness column, but I was actually healing myself along the way. Because if you can teach something, that means you know it. And yes. so like learn and learn about like, why is sugar so detrimental? How are we supposed to be eating? What is meditation? Like, what are crystals? Like, why is everyone obsessed with crystals? And I, I looked at the science, but also the woo-woo. So it was a mix of the two and try to make sense of, of what makes for great health and happiness. Was your dad happy you've now switched into wellness? Actually, it's kind of full circle. And especially I, by the end of it, became super intrigued with all the topics I encountered from like yoga to meditation, all this stuff. What really intrigued me was this field called herbalism. I was in Costa Rica and in a corner of this property retreat center I was staying at, there were these herbalists. These women would come out of the corner with their tinctures and their plant mixtures and I'd taste them and they would change my disposition. And I was like, what is this? And so I came home and I started to study with herbalists and apprentice with several in the Catskills in New York City. But herbalism is actually our first medicine. It's the study of how herbs and botanicals heal especially a women's tradition that our great, 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 great grandmothers would go into the forest and know which bark to peel and brew in order to heal our ailments. And so, yes, I've kind of returned to this field that is healing. My father still thinks I should go to medical school and go like, <laughs> I don't think I'll ever please him. <laughs> med, med school thing. At least for me, I think it's like it's some sort of lineage in me that I, I am answering. And within the study of herbalism, there's something called herbal wine that we mm. use to make wine out of flowers in ancient Egypt, Greece, Rome, China. In almost every culture that I've run across in my studies, we've had this tradition of brewing herbs and botanicals, especially back in the day. These brews were safer to drink than water, so they were medicinal in nature. And so I also found out they're a cousin to kombucha. And, and the more I learned, I was like, how does this not exist? I started the journey of building an herbal wine company. And so my business was born. And is that called Kale or is that the name of the wine? Uh, so at the start, the company was called Kale and we switched the name to Navina late last year. So it's now running under Navina. And our first two releases were Hibiscus Wine and Marigold Flower Wine. And mm. we're currently product developing to release a couple of new wines later this year. So there's flowers in the wine, but is there alcohol or what else is in there? Because I'm coming from this wellness mindset and I've started to drink less myself, although I do enjoy a glass of wine, we decided to lower the alcohol. So it's about half the alcohol in a normal glass of wine, which is great mm -hmm. for the weekday for me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you come home from work, and you're like, I just need a little respite. Let me have a little sip. You can just have this. And it's like way less alcohol than a, a normal glass of wine. We also lowered the sugar, the calories, the sulfites. 
but yeah, it's, it's the fermentation of flowers and botanicals. And it's a tradition that I cannot believe is not in the mainstream. But of course, herbalists know of this tradition. And in my building of this business, I'm not only looking to bring these products to market, but I'm hoping to educate people that herbalism exists. Yeah. yeah. That, like you can find solace in plants that if you have a headache, you don't have to immediately go to CVS or whatever and get like an over-the-counter thing. You can look to a plant and brew it mm. in tea maybe, and it can give you relief. I was just in Peru and for altitude, they have you drink coca leaves and it really worked. Yeah, it's funny. It's like herbs, you feel them work in your body. And it's just fun getting to know each different flower and botanical and its history. And also there's folklore around it. Yeah, yeah. Really, really fun stories about these plants and botanicals. And that's how the story of their medicine was passed down. So it's been a fun journey. Where do you make your wine? I product developed here on the East Coast. I partnered with a women-owned distillery on the North Fork of New York called Matchbook Distillery. Mm. And then we took that formula and now I currently produce out of Napa. Wow. So is there anybody else doing herbal wines? I have run across a couple of women who have started businesses around this, which is so exciting to me. I'm not too much a believer in like, we must compete against each other. Right. <laughs> I, just, I just love seeing, especially herbalists and women popping up with these companies. So I've seen a couple of small wineries doing this tradition as well, and I'm rooting them on. So when you talk about your herbal wines from a nutritional standpoint, is it a healthy thing to drink versus just healthier? I think it's a healthy thing, right? To incorporate into your life. Can you talk about that? So when I speak of these, I speak of the tradition and what I've learned because, you know, I can't <laughs> purport that this will save you. But I can tell, for example, the history of hibiscus that it has a ton of antioxidants. Um, it can help with blood pressure. And then marigold flowers have been used for inflammation and for fortifying the gut. I love to tell the history of these and what I've learned from herbalists. Right. And it's a great way to bring this into your life and into your body. Mm. Especially since I've lowered, you know, the alcohol. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a nice thing for your lifestyle during the week if you're super busy and have things in the daytime, but you also love a glass of wine at night. I love that idea. You've talked about this earlier, but the wine's a lot like kombucha. So kombuchas can be a little bit sweeter. We ferment our wine to dry. And so there will be notes of things familiar um, because it is a fermentation process. And we do blend in just a little bit of grape wine to help balance it, especially because, you know, fermenting botanicals is very new to the American palate. I, as a studying herbalist, I've tasted these herbs and botanicals, but I think to the masses, it'll be way too new. And so we blended in a little bit of wine, grape wine, but there is a familiarity. But then there's also like fun little Something features where you're like, yeah, this is kind of floral. This has a little kick here. This one's a little bit more tart. So there's fun things that differ from traditional wine grape wine. Where can you buy it? So I'm currently selling them online at drinknovena.com. I launched direct to consumer because that was the easiest, most accessible market I had access to. The alcohol industry is one of the hardest to start a business in. To get into a store or a restaurant, you have to like reach certain levels and get a distributor. And so there's a lot that I'm working up towards. But for now, I'm selling them online, which is great because that's how people shop now anyway. You're very young, but yet we're, Trisha and I are amazed at what you've done yeah. in your life. It's very impressive. 
what advice would you give to women trying to figure out what to do in their life? I mean, you've seemed to have taken this amazing road to figure out what you want to do. What advice do you have? Thank you very much, first of all. But I think that you have to be kind of used to change and realize that you will travel different identities throughout your life like knowing when to let go of something like I was ready to stop playing volleyball and then that wasn't going to be the end of my life like I had more to do just like having the confidence that like this is a story you're living like life is such a journey I think it's so exciting that you get to change identities especially like living today this is such an interesting time in human history where you can literally become anything that you want and live several lives (laughs) in one life if you're an engineer but you want to go be a model just do it your mind will play tricks on you and, you know, be like, you can't do it, all this. So for women, I'd say like, first be aware that you have the ability to change and start a new life. And it may be hard, but take an inward journey and get to know yourself because that's where it's the the courage and the stamina and persistence to switch to something else will come from. It's, It's from within you. That's really well said. You're just this old soul. You know, you just have such <laughs> wisdom that yeah. everyone could learn from. I love to document my journey, business building, and also my journey into wellness. It's something I will do the rest of my life, just questioning the universe and the mind and health. And I love to take people along the journey with me. It's very much I'm learning alongside, you know, the people who join in on my, on my social media. So what is your social media? Tell us so so we can follow you. Thank you. It's just my name on Instagram, Nana Merriweather. And then um, my company is Drink Navina on Instagram. Well, Nana, thank you. Yes, this has been thank wonderful. You. Thank you really so fun. much. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.